Well, it's good to be back, and I recognize some of you. You have to help me if I have to, uh, have you helped me remember some of your names, because I'm way over 50, and you know, um, you, start, you start losing certain things, and, uh, and one of them is your memory. So, anyway, but it's good to be back. We were here off and on last year. And then uh, Pastor Rudy came, and I actually vaguely knew Pastor Rudy from years ago when we both pastored in Northern California, and um, renewed his acquaintance at a pastor's meeting, and it was before he came out here, but um, we kind of reconnected in some ways, and his wife had passed away a short time before that, I guess it's probably been about a year and a half or two years ago now that that happened. And he was, you know, putting the best foot forward and doing well, but um, there was kind of a trace of sadness, as you might expect. And I'm saying all of that because uh, he always spoke so highly of this congregation here. And when I came here last time... um, I felt like Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. Uh, What I mean by that is, um, I felt like the kid brother of Pastor Rudy because I heard so many great things about Pastor Rudy. And all of them were true. And what I want to say is that I know he was a blessing to you. Vanette gave me an update on um, eight people being baptized in the last year. Praise the Lord for that. That's wonderful. And... um, New people came and others returned and, and there was great growth in the church and I see evidence of that now by some faces that I hadn't seen before. But I can tell you this, that as much of a uh, lift as Pastor Rudy was to you, you were inspiration for him. Because when I would run across him at our monthly ministers meetings, He had a new bounce in his step, and several times he was uh, giving reports about what was going on in Overton, and for that season, that kind of got cut short prematurely, I guess, when um, he had the rug pulled out from under him in that his whole family was moving to Tennessee, and I think he'd still be here, except he would be um, here all by himself all week long, but... um, you were as much an encouragement and breathed new life and hope and energy into him too. So it was a mutual thing. And so that was a great thing. But it's good to see you again. And um, I'd like us to just open with prayer because I'd like, I, I need all the help from the Holy Spirit I can get all the time. And um, I remember when I was 21, 25. I really didn't think there was much of anything I couldn't do if I just put my mind to it. And now, I don't think there's anything I can do if I don't ask the Lord to help me get it done. Have any of you reached that point in your life yet? So let's just ask the Lord to bless us here this morning. Father, we come before you this day. We thank you, Father, for uh, the family of faith that we're a part of. And as we look at your word today... I ask, Lord, that you'd give us insight and understanding. We just invite your Holy Spirit right here. And uh, we pray, Lord, that through the miracle of the spoken word and proclaimed word, that your Holy Spirit would just ride that word into each of our hearts and minds that we need from you today. So we ask this and say thank you in advance because we know you'll faithfully speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you would uh, agree with me that these are not ordinary, but kind of extraordinary times we're living in today? Am I the only one that thinks that? Uh, There's been kind of a shaking of the foundations, and it's still rocking and rolling right now, isn't it? And there's lots of things that have happened. This isn't the first time that has happened, but this is another one of those, uh, I call them revelation generations. Uh, down through history, there have been different periods of time when there's been a pitched a battle between 
It's spiritual warfare is really what it is between uh, the mystery of evil and Satan and the power of good and the Holy Spirit that are in collision. And there's some things that are shaping up that uh, all of us in one way or another are either um, shocked by or affected by in one way or another. And there's different things that have brought us to this point. And so I'm going to just for a moment uh, highlight uh, where we are as far as what I want to say today and how that might affect our lives or it might in the future. Uh, but there's a precedent for that that happened, um, well, maybe almost a hundred years ago now. And a lesson we can learn from that time. Now, we might be living at the final curtain of human history. Uh, this might be the big final revelation generation. And how many of you is it okay with if the Lord comes back right away? You know, I think we're all there. Um, but we better be ready because there are things pressing in on us that we haven't seen in our country, in our schools, in our culture before. And so it's a pitched battle. Now, I'll just pick a starting point for this. Really, this goes back for generations. But I don't think you want to go all the way back there. So I'll just dive in in the year 1971. Um, the man's name was Klaus Schwab. He was a German man. And uh, he was an uh, engineer by trade and an economist as well. And I think Klaus Schwab's motives were probably well-intentioned. He wanted to reimagine the world in which we live. Um, a world where there would be more equity, where there wouldn't be large economic gaps between people, uh, where there would be more justice, a lot of good things. And, and he convened uh, a group of people that would meet once a year. These are some of the shakers and movers from different countries around the world. Some of the greatest, um, some of the richest people, some of the most influential, some of the leading political people. And he convened what he called the World Economic Forum. Now there might be some of you that have heard of that. Does that name ring a bell for any of you? And they began, I don't know if they started meeting here, but uh, even every year now, uh, a thousand or more private jets fly in from around the world. Um, they, in one week, those jets that fly in, pump 9,700 tons of CO2 into the atmosphere in the name of trying to clean our air up for the rest of us. Okay? But somehow it's justified for them uh, because what is good for thee is not, does not apply to me. But they have all kinds of conferences and people that come. And this re-imaging called, is called the Great Reset. And in the last few years, the pandemic, anybody remember the pandemic? Uh, there were those in Klaus... Uh, Schwab was one of them who said, this is a rare moment of opportunity that we can really change some things in the name of trying to reimagine a better world. And all kinds of peoples and movements and causes jumped in in this great reset. And uh, the World Economic Conference isn't the only thing. But while we're at it, let's declare a climate change emergency. And while we're at it, let's redefine morality. And while we're at it, let's reset the economy. And while we're at it, let's try to invent new genders that people can be. And the list goes on. You know what I'm talking about. And so all of this stuff was thrown in together. And under the undercurrent of much of this, there is, I don't think this is my imagination, there is a, a hostility 
and a disdain for tradition and old values and ways of doing things. And there is a hostility towards traditional Christianity in this, even in our own country. How many of you have sensed that a little bit? You know what I'm talking about here. And the idea is, and, and, and I can sense for myself his satanic unmajesty behind all of this. There's something dark spiritually that is happening here. And the power of delusion and persuasion and the insanity that some people are buying into, to me, is absolutely astounding. Paul talks about this in one of his letters. When he said of the intellectuals of his day and the Greek philosophers, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And there's some of that that's happening right in Overton right now. Bunch of it in Las Vegas and around the country and around the world. And we don't know the outcome of where this is leading. There are many that are predicting a time of real hardship for the church and for Christians. Um, it could be the rapture. Wouldn't that be nice? Would you mind if the Lord came before you could have your potluck dinner today? Not at all. We'd leave it for somebody else, right? So, we just don't know. But we have to be prepared. We're not fearful. We have faith and confidence because I'm telling you, in the end, God always wins. Now, at the same time this is happening, there is an upwelling and an awakening within our own country against some of this tidal wave that is taking place. And it's happening on a number of different fronts. Does the name Brittany Griner uh, ring a bell with any of you? Um, she got tired of losing swimming meets to a six-foot-four um, transgender female in the, in the swimming meets. And, but as a Christian, she has stood up and gone to many different venues and been booed and jeered uh, for, for the stand she's taking. But she's taking a stand as a Christian. There's someone that you may or may not have heard of. This is just recently. His name is Joe Kennedy. Anybody here know who Joe Kennedy is? It's been a few years ago now. He was fired from his high school where he taught in Bremerton, Washington because he would personally go out in the middle of the football field and kneel down and pray at the close of a football game. So they fired him. He took his cause to the Supreme Court and he won. It was about three or four weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, where they had his homecoming. And there was a huge crowd at the football game and many of the football players, I think they put crosses on their forehead and they joined him in prayer after the game. It's a win that is there. So there are things that are happening where, how about the mama bears uh, that have had enough of the school district trying to program their little boys and little girls. I'm telling you, a mama bear is not somebody to fool with. There might be some mama bears sitting here right now. And in, uh, in industry, oh, I, one proud mama bear just raised her hand back there. Keep going for it. And I like the way some of the big business and the corporations are learning a hard lesson right now. They tried to enlighten us. Did you know that Disney's Income was down 25% last year. And you know why, don't you? Okay. Do you know now, trying to get people back, I just saw it the other day, they will give you uh, for three months, for $1.99, a Disney pass to their Disney station. It's going to take more than that to get me back. Okay. Um, Right near where we live in the northwest part of Las Vegas, there's a target there, and they've been doing this extensive remodel. 
And we got a thing in the mail inviting us to come back with a $5 gift card if we'll just come in and check it out because they've been hurt economically by some of the displays that they've had. And so you get the idea there is this pushback that is coming. And that's a good thing. But we don't know where this is headed just yet. Now, let me take you back to the 1930s. And the setting was this. There had been probably one of the stupidest wars that was ever fought because there were no clear villains, but 20 million people were killed, soldiers. That was World War I. There really were no good guys and bad guys, but this war broke out and the Western Allied powers really picked on Germany because Germany was the big dog on the other side. And after World War I, and this isn't going to be a long history lesson, so uh, just bear with me, the Western Allied powers put the screws to Germany. They wanted them to pay and rebuild everything that they had destroyed. And there were a lot of bad things that the German people had done, or the German armies. But France and England hadn't been so good themselves. Trench warfare is a terrible thing. But it really oppressed the German people. They couldn't, they were a proud people. They were a broken people. They were a humiliated people. And there was a Fuhrer. His name was Adolf Hitler. And he spoke to that broken spirit of the German people. And a new spirit of nationalism began to rise again. And you know what that became. And that was a dark power. That was a spirit of Antichrist that had filled the mind and heart of one Adolf Hitler and those that were in the leadership of that Third Reich. And I don't have to tell you all the horrors that took place. And the church was persecuted. During that period of time, backing up into the teens and the 20s, there was a young man that was born into a prominent family in Germany. His father, whose name was Karl, was a prominent psychiatrist in Germany. And this was a, um, not aristocratic, but one of the elite influential families in Germany. And he had a brother who was a lawyer. And this young man, it was a Christian, a nominally Lutheran family. And by the time he was 14 years old, he said, I want to study theology. I want to be a pastor. His family put him down because one of the things that had happened is World War I really broke the back of European Christianity. And the church in Europe really has not fully revived itself to this day because of this war that took place between Christian people in Europe. And this young man took a stand against what Adolf Hitler was doing. He became a member of what was called the Confessing Church in, in, uh, in Germany. He was arrested for that, imprisoned for that. And shortly before the liberation of Germany or the fall of the Third Reich, he was hung executed as a martyr in 1945. Some of you might have guessed of who I'm talking about now. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great theological mind. Any of you ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Some of you have. Okay. And this is leading to a point. It's the reason why those four divine mandates are up there on the wall. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm getting to the point that I want to speak on for a few minutes this morning. Uh, before he was imprisoned, he wrote what was going to be his great publication. And it was titled, entitled simply Ethics. But the manuscript wasn't finished when he was imprisoned. 
And after he was executed, those who followed Dietrich Bonhoeffer gathered them up and they published them in a book. Here, here's here, enough for all the history lessons and all that now. So the stage is pretty well set. What Bonhoeffer said as a Christian writer and thinker, and these are biblically based points as you will see in a moment, that there are four divine mandates that rest over us as Christians, that are part of our calling as the church. These are pillars of a Christian culture and a Christian civilization, a Christian community and a Christian home. These are practical things that God has ordained and established. And as these are observed and recognized and practiced in our lives individually and collectively, that's where we see the will of God and the plan of God begin to unfold and pack and manifest itself in the life of a people who have faith. Now the subtitle here is People Get Ready. And um, that will become clear at the close of the message, why I, why I uh, chose that title. So let's start. Well, let me just tell you what the four mandates were that Bonhoeffer had. I've, 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 I've slightly renamed a couple of them, but it's essentially the same thing. The first is the church. The second is marriage and family. The third is what he called government. And the fourth is vocation. Those are divine mandates. Those are callings. Those are responsibilities. Those are priorities. That as we tend to those, so, uh, those spheres of our lives, God works through us in our lives and in our communities and in our nations and in our world. Those are vehicles for civilized Christian spiritual living. How they work out. So the first of these I'm calling... Mandate number one, I'm calling it ecclesia. Now, I'm not trying to show off that I know a little bit of Greek. But there's a reason why I've chosen this. The term ecclesia is the Greek word that translates church. And the passage of scripture will come up in just, in just a moment. And I cho I'm choosing ecclesia because that is the Greek word that Jesus used. He actually, actually probably spoke the Aramaic word, but in our New Testament, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. And the reason why I'm using that instead of church is churchianity has kind of a stodgy and um, kind of a not as appealing a name now. Because some bad things that have done, never mind the reason why. But ecclesia literally means fellowship. It means the assembly is actually the literal translation of ecclesia. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my assembly, my gathered body of believers. And that gathered body of believers comes in many different situations throughout time and in different cultures. We could go to the house churches in China today. Most of the Christians, and you know, there are more Christians in China today, well over a hundred million, than has ever been in China at any point in their history. Okay. Uh, we could go to Iran, where the churches are underground. And I haven't seen any hard data on this, but the reports are coming that the mullahs in Iran are concerned because they have never seen such an influx of people turning to Christ as they're seeing in the Islamic Republic right now. The same can be said about what is happening in Latin America. On and on it goes. And so this church comes in many different shapes and forms. Let's just read the first passage of scripture here. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Am I the only one that sometimes looks at the church in general and says, and thinks to myself, Lord, there's so many things that are broken about it. There's so many things that aren't perfect. But the church is still marching on after 2,000 years, isn't it? And the reason why it is flawed and imperfect is because we're in it. And that's who we are. But that doesn't change the fact that this is an institution that has been established by God. And through it, he speaks into our lives and speaks into our world. Why do you suppose it is that some of these radical, agnostic, secularists out there today, why is it that they are so adamant in picking on the church? It's because... The lies of Satan have never been able to break the back of God's truth. Now, there is a book that has just come out. I've given you some highlights of what's happening around the world, but the church, the ecclesia in America is in decline right now. Oh, there's some, there, there seems to be signs of an awakening. Um... There's a book that has in its title, The Dechurching of America. And they've done a lot of uh, research on it. And do you know that in the last 25 years, I, I'm reluctant to even say this because I, I don't know if I believe it or not, there are 40 million fewer Americans going to church now than 25 years ago. There are no churches that I know of that are 100% back from the pandemic. 25 years ago, the average size of a church in America was north of 100. I forget whether it was 110, 120, something like that. The median size of a church in America today is 65. Lots of pastors are discouraged and leaving the ministry. They think there's something wrong. And, but, there's, but that is one of the things that's happening in our world right now. But with that said, coming back to mandate number one, there's nowhere in Scripture where God said he would bless or say where two or three of you are zooming together, there am I in the midst it's the presence of people. And there is a sense in which the Spirit is present right here now as we gather in His name. And so the church is an institution of God's. And the Lord will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Believe me, hell has tried to launch an attack on the church over and over again. For You realize within a decade, the church will be 2,000 years old because it started in 33 A.D. when Jesus ascended. And it's stronger than ever now. Now, these are big numbers. I don't think all these people are going to heaven. But the number of people worldwide right now that would identify with the Christian faith are 2.7 billion people. Now, I wish they were all going to heaven. But that is uh, nearly one in three of the world's population. Let's move to another scripture here right now. Or look at the mission of the church. Just certain things to mention. The church is here, the visible church. And by the way, the church looks great. You've painted it and you trimmed the... Um, Texas Sage out there in front and all the rest. It looks great and the fans are working a lot better and some good things are going on. So that's, that's great. But the church is a visible presence in the world and the community. Sometimes we feel outnumbered, beat up, um, overlooked, powerless, but we're not. It has been 25 years ago now when I was pastoring at Calvary Community in Las Vegas, and we had just finished building um, a new church there, right on the corner of, uh, it was on uh, Torrey Pines, right near Cheyenne, in northwest part of Las Vegas. I always got to church early on Sunday morning. 
there's all kinds of things you need to do, make, you know, just check everything out and all the rest. I was in my office, which was right uh, on the outside, outside wall to the church there. And I heard something, bam, bam, pounding on the wall outside the church. And I had a door that uh, opened to the outside. And I looked out and there was a man standing there with a hammer pounding the church, pounding it. I said, what are you doing? And he looked startled because he didn't think anybody was there yet. And he took off running and drove away. And I thought, what in the world is this all about? Later that week, I got a phone call. And this person, I didn't know who it was. He said, you don't know who I am. But do you remember somebody pounding on the church last Sunday? Let me see now. Oh, yeah, I remember. Like every week, somebody's pounding on the church with a hammer. He said, that was me. He said, ever since you've built this church here, I drive by it on the way to work, and my conscience starts bothering me because of what the church stands for. And I just couldn't take it anymore, and I came and I was trying to tear the church down. But he said, I need to come to the Lord. And I led that man to the Lord over the phone that day. The church is, is, is a tool that God uses. Now, let, I'm not going to take a long time on these, but just, let's just run down this list. It's the pathway to salvation. Not all roads do lead to God or lead to heaven. It's the church. It's the pathway to salvation. It's the guardian of the faith. Let's take a play on that word guardian. It provides the guardrails to our faith. Now, you don't need to do this at all, but I, in my own personal devotions, it begins, first thing, because I take early morning walks, and um, they last about an hour or so, and most of that time is, is in prayer. But there's certain things I've got to take care of before I can get to my shopping list with the Lord and all of that. The first thing I do, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And you know how the rest of it goes. The last phrase of that is, I believe in the holy Christian church. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. It's the Apostles' Creed. I need to set the guardrails in my life every day as the day is rolling on whose I am, not just who I am, but whose I am and what I believe. And the church provides us with the guardrails faith. It provides us with insight for living. Psalms 119.105 Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is a witness to the truth. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's a tool of evangelism. You guys should be so humbly proud that eight of you got baptized this year. It's wonderful. Pointing people to Christ. It's a moral compass in our lives. How many of us know that we need to have a compass in our lives today. There's so many new moralities, and the science says this. Okay. Now, don't get me. I won't. I won't interrupt myself and get off on that sidetrack right now. But a moral compass. It's the source of help and support when you're in need. Whether it's a prayer need or whether the church I attend regularly, they have a food bank. Help or support. It's what the church does. And it builds community and fellowship. That word fellowship in Greek is koinonia. You've heard the term koinonia before. And the visiting, the friendships, we really do need each other. These are all tools of the church. We are a gifted people. The way the Lord operates through the church is through the spiritual gifts that he awakens within each of our lives. 
And we have them listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We have them listed in Romans chapter 12. That'll be the next slide that I pop up here in a second. We have them listed in Ephesians 4. And I think if you total all of those up, there's some overlap in some of them. There's nine spiritual gifts there. Back during the Jesus movement, I was a youth pastor, and we had lots of uh, teenagers, hippies, coming to the Lord. And one came to the Lord, and he'd been, uh, he had been a Christian for about 90 days. And he came up to me as a youth pastor, and he said, Pastor Stan, I want you to know that I now have all nine gifts of operation, operating in my life. Well, I hope he did. That was, he was a 90-day wonder there. <laughs> but the spiritual gifts are open-ended. It's not a closed list. And the reason we know that is Paul sent one list to Corinth, one list, uh, list to Rome, and another one to Ephesus. And the list isn't the same. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody sent you right in this day and time a wonderful worship leader like Pastor Rudy's son was and, uh, and he lived right here and could a gift of music. We've got people that have gifts of technology now. The Holy Spirit hadn't even invented that one before. And where there's a need or a skill or an ability, the Holy Spirit can sanctify that in your life. Awaken a passion and interest. Do you know that Andre Crouch, how many remember Andre Crouch? He's been gone a few years now. Great, a, a, a great gospel singer. And never had a piano lesson in his life. I know this because Andre Crouch and the disciples used to come to the church where I was in San Diego. And he told us the story. He said, I just felt like I wanted to worship the Lord and I just sat down at the piano and I started playing. And he had a great ministry and music ministry through that. What I'm trying to say is God can awaken new, new gifts in our, in our lives. And here's the passage of scripture I've chosen. This is just one of them. Just to read over it to reference what I just spoke about. For just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is to give, give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. This isn't for bragging rights or anything. How many of you have recognized a gifted way in which God uses you. Can I just see your hand? You're here. See? Most of us. And if that hasn't happened in your life, and you know the Lord, boy, it's right there. Trying to break through in your life. These are, these are anointings God puts upon us. Sometimes he's developing a native talent that we have. Sometimes he's inventing something that you didn't know you had in your repertoire at all, like with Andre Crouch. But it's gifts that are the key. 1 Peter 2.9, and, and we'll move on to, I'm only going to get two of these four mandates today because... Um, I'll know I'm way off the mark if there's only six of us here next week. Uh, but, but the last two we're going to get to next week. But this is the end of the first one. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There are lots of institutions in our world. We have government. We have business. We have educators. We have court systems. And all of those have a place. But the one institution that God 
has centered that outlasts all forms of governments and the rises and falls of kingdoms and all the rest is the church. I don't know what you call these things. I haven't seen one for a long time in the store, but they have these um, little blow-up dolls that are there, and they always bounce back to standing up. They're weighted in the bottom, and I've seen them where you can go up and you can punch them, and they'll flop over, and then they come back up. Think of the church as one of those can't-knock-them-out dolls. Because the Spirit is what inhabits the church. And as we are part of the church, we are unbeatable. And God can accomplish great things to us. Let's move to uh, mandate number two. Marriage and family. Last thing I'm going to talk about. This is the oldest institution on the face of the earth. Before priests, before altars, before holy books, before cathedrals, before any organized religion of any sort, as an order of creation, God created us man and woman. And here's the scripture that goes with that in Genesis. Then God said, I, I'm being politically correct here, so I altered the translation just a little. I'm not woke. But I didn't want somebody to feel offended if a woman to feel like she was left out. So God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number Fill the earth and subdue it. Now there's two of us that have, at least that have done our share on replenishing the earth. I have five kids and you have seven? Who has seven? He does. Congratulations. When I, when I preach in a, on Mother's Day, one thing I've said f uh, for years and it's very politically incorrect but uh, to all the couples that are there regarding children, have them soon and have them often. God knows how much space we have on this earth. And it's a culture of life that is created here. But here's the thing I want you to notice as, as we start rolling here on this one point. That God created us to find Fullness in the context of relationship between man and woman. And this, by the way, relates part of the image of God is God is complete in the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as we live together as husband and wife and child, there's kind of a family unit there that reflects the image of God that is there. And so, it's God's will for Adam and Eve, not Adam and Bruce, and not Eve and Beverly. But we find fulfillment in the context of the relationship between man and woman. And I stress that because there's so many other models that are trying to be um, purported today. I can tell you, whether it's a Christian civilization or some other one, that when you depart from that order of creation as far as a family structure, that's when the fabric of a culture and society begins to break apart. Do you know that before the years of the Roman Empire, for 500 years before that, this was pagan Rome, for 500 years before that, in the years of the Roman Republic, there is not one recorded account of a divorce that took place. And that was the foundation and the building blocks of Rome. And the same is true for us 
today. Now there are some ground rules here. I move along and I will be finished shortly. This is um, a kind of clipping uh, out of Ephesians chapter 5. The basic ingredients of a marriage that works. Now I have put in small letters up above husbands and wives. Okay? And here's the reason for that. In the Greek, there are no paragraph markers. The text just runs together. And the reader or the translator has to decide uh, where a sentence ends and where a paragraph begins and all of that. So in most of your translations, if you have an NIV translation with you, and, and uh, I'm not trying to say I'm smarter than these guys, but this is one place where I take issue with them. In most of your translations, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is the last sentence in the paragraph before it. Now the translators made that decision. Maybe they're right. I don't know. But I don't think they are. I think that is the introduction to the uh, instructions that follow. So it's the prelude to the relationship between husband and wife and uh, parent and children, employer and employees. It bleeds over into the sixth chapter. So as the introduction in all of these roles that you fulfill, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do the Lord. Husbands, love wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That model of Christ and the church works for us in marriage relationships as well. Now there's lots of wiggle room there for differences, personalities, and that sort of thing that is there. But this second mandate is for marriage and family. Now this is one of the things that's breaking down in our culture right now. There is a growing percentage of young women that have no intention of getting married and God forbid they ever be burdened with kids. See? Now that model might work for the short haul but it will not work over the long haul because that is the order of creation that God has established. Now one last thing here about um, Parents and children. Proverbs 22.6. And this is my last slide. And this is where we're going to leave this this morning. Um, we're going to take it word for word. Train. Parents have a responsibility to guide and to discipline and to direct the lives of their children. This idea that you just let them decide and discover for themselves. It doesn't work. Now look at the second word that is here. Train what? Up. Lift them up. Don't beat them down and tell them all the negative things. Train them up. Affirm them. Help them as they discover who they are and what they want to be when they grow up. Train up a child. Start young. When I was pastoring, somebody would come in with their 17-year-old. They didn't know what to do with them. And I, I, I'd say, well, did you, uh, did you take them to church? Did you have family devotions? No, we didn't do that. Well, I would do my best. But you're about 15 years too late. You've got to start these things. Train up a child in the way he should go. Help them discover who they are. My oldest son, one of the reasons why we moved back uh, to Las Vegas to be near kids and grandkids in retirement. As long as I can remember, Rob, I, well, he loves Star Wars. I can remember when he was just four or five years old and I'd come to the house and he'd jump off the couch with his lightsaber and he'd be attacking me. I was always Darth Vader, you know, that's coming in. But he always had this thing about, about flying and, and, and aeronautics and he loved it. And um, 
Uh, so he, he graduated from West Point and he was in their aviation program and he was a, um, a, a Apache pilot and, and flying the Apache helicopters. And then uh, he got himself, and I should say when he was 13 years old, he came to Vegas to be with grandpa and paint a house for him to save up the money at 13 so he could go skydiving. So I remember when he came back to Aptos, his mom and I went out. We didn't want him to do it, but he said, Dad, I'm going to do it one way or the other. You can either do it looking or when, I, when you're not looking, but I'm doing it. We went out. It was near Hollister, California, and we watched this plane fly over. And here we saw my 13-year-old son jump out of the plane and come parachuting down. It was tandem. He could, they wouldn't let him go alone, but there he did it. Well, all of that. Then he, then he became, switched to the Air Force and, and flew the KC-135s. And he retired from the Air Force a couple of years ago. And now he's a pilot with Delta Airlines. Now here's the thing. Uh, we thought, I thought he was going to be a professional baseball player. And he was very good at it. And when he was in college, uh, he, was, he was a good pitcher as a freshman. And he said, and he's a real smart guy. He said, you know, Dad, after that first year, I realized that there's not many 150-pound, 5'9 pitchers in the major leagues. I better switch. So he switched to physics, okay? But the point I want to make is discovering and that journey with him is how he found that plan for his life. My two daughters, this one's kind of funny, um, they used to like to play with Barbies. How many ladies here used to play with Barbies? A few of you did. Okay. And did I see you raise your hand? Oh, no, you were just picking your chair. Okay. <laughs> so I was up in upstairs in our house, and this was back in Santa Cruz, old farmhouse, and upstairs we made into bedrooms with the kids. And my two daughters, Christy and Stacy, were up there, and they were playing Barbie dolls. And they didn't know I was looking because I had a little uh, tool shed. It was upstairs but with a door that went into the house where I kept some things. And the door was cracked open. And I was watching Christy and Stacy play with their Barbie dolls. And the Barbies wanted to go swimming. And so Christy took Stacy's swimming, Barbie swimming suit and said, your Barbie's just going to have to swim naked. And Stacy, never to be outdone, she grabbed Christie's Barbie doll, ripped off her head, and said, your Barbie's just going to have to swim without her head. <laughs> Saying all that to say, they are wonderful mothers, and they have their careers, their teachers, but nothing's more important to them in their life than being a mom. So you train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, that can break two ways. Some of us have kids that have some rough childhoods. But finally, the roots you put down sink in. And when they're much older, they return to the way they were raised. Some are more lucky. Their kids never depart from it. And they follow the Lord throughout their life.